So last time we talked about progressive sanctification. It has been uh, an issue ever since Jesus ascended until today. So 2,000 years there's been a lot of confusion as to how does a Christian grow? Uh, how does he uh, walk with the Lord? How does he progress in holiness? And we talked to you about perfectionism, and I'm not going through all these unless you have a question, but just to mention. Perfectionism is basically a Westland a belief that if you pray through, you can get rid of your old sin nature, and you don't sin anymore, you just make good or bad choices. Uh, holiness groups. Then you have the uh, Keswick movement, which was uh, came into play in the 1800s, and uh, Christians are to take a passive role in their life, let the God take over. So you just lay back and let God, or as their phrase goes, uh, let go and let God. Not much you have to do about it. Then we have the dedication thing, that part of it is you get saved and later you need to dedicate your life to the Lord. And uh, so it, uh, you get saved and you may not grow much, and your growth may be very slow, but you come to a crucial point in your life where you say, I'm really going to give my life to the Lord, and, and you really uh, pick up at that point. Um, so that's the dedication view point. We also talked about spiritual formation. This is a mystical thing in which you go through certain religious rites, and they help you. You go to church every day, mass every day. You confess your sin, and you take involved in all of the rites that the church may have, and they somehow mystical impart grace to you. Then there's a reformed view that at the moment of salvation one is justified and at that point he will progressively grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If and This view is if there's no evidence of Christian, uh, of Christian virtues and no evidence of walking with God then, uh, then it's very likely you're not saved at all. And then in that group, the reform group, there is the free grace group. And this is salvation by grace alone, apart from any human work or merit, which we would not deny. We would agree with that. But uh, the point is, if a, if a saved person responds to a call, uh, he uh, progress in salvation can be, he can live all his life, never go to church, never show any signs of Christianity, and the extreme view of this would be if you prayed uh, uh, that little nightly prayer, how does it go? And, go ahead, somebody got it, I slipped my mind all the way. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. Uh, if you pray that prayer, you could be saved. And you never know it. That's the free grace movement. So that's very common today in Reformed or Christian circles like ours. And then there is the Lordship view, and this is salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, apart from any human work or merit. And faith involves trusting Christ as God, who made a sacrifice for our sins, believing he is the Lord at the time of salvation. 
And to be a believer, how can a person be a believer and deny Christ is Lord? So in 2 Corinthians 5.16, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. So the believers with this point of view find it impossible for there to be no transformation at the time of salvation. If you're really repentant, you see, repentance is out. Repentance is a work to those who believe in free grace. To us, repentance and faith are ones, are each side of a coin. And, and uh, so, how can there not be a transformation? So, John 14, 21, He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So, loving the Lord, uh, it's not an issue. You don't have to take him as Lord later. He is the Lord, and you accept that responsibility when you're saved. He's in charge. Any comments on any of these methods? Now, for the right one. All right. And I say right one, if I knew there was another one that was right, I'd act except that. So uh, uh, that's the way it is with me. And I've changed my mind over years of growth in Christianity as, as much as you have. It's a constant growth process. Okay, the place of the law in progressive sanctification. The meaning of the law is, first of all, this is a problem that was faced in the early church. The law and grace. Remember, uh, people got saved, Gentiles got saved. They trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And the Jews said, no, that's all right, but you got to be circumcised. And if you're not circumcised, we doubt you're really saved. So it was salvation by grace alone and circumcision and, and other parts of the law. The food, the ordinances, the festivals, the days. And so this was impressed upon the church. And it is today in many conservative churches. They have not made that distinction. But the law is one indivisible, uh, one indivisible truth. Uh, what churches have done today with the Ten Commandments is this. They've divided it into the moral, that's the Ten Commandments, that's binding on everyone, the ceremonial, they divided the law into the ceremonial, the sacrifices, the tithe, and all that. And then they divided it into the civil. Remember in the law, it's how do you handle civil matters? So they have three components of the law, the moral, the ceremonial, and the civil. But the Bible does not divide the law that way. It is one unified thing. Take a look at Leviticus 18, verse 5, when we look at the law. 
Leviticus 18, verse 5, and somebody read that, somebody look ahead and read those passages. They talk about the law as an one unity. Leviticus 18, 5. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. Okay, here you have it. You shall keep my statutes and my judgments. If you live, if you do them, you will live. Now hypothetically, this is hypothetically, if somebody could keep every jot and tittle, every dot and top crossing of the tree of the law and never disobey it, they're going to have eternal life. What's the problem? Nobody's ever kept? First of all, you're born with sin nature, the tendency to sin. So nobody's ever kept the law. All right, Ezekiel 20, verse 11, basically. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Okay, by which if a man observes them, he will live. All right, look at Ezekiel 20 while you're there, Brett. Verse 20, and to keep my Sabbaths holy, that they may be a sign between me and you, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. Verse 13, Ezekiel 20, 13. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules, by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. I have then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. You have that in your Bible? I do. Okay. I'm just checking. <laughs> Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. How about Ezekiel? Did, did we read Ezekiel 20? We did, didn't we? 22. So the point is, the law was given, and they were required to keep all of it. The food laws and all the rest. Now nobody ever kept the Ten Commandments and all the rest. So God instituted a sacrificial system whereby they could be forgiven if they would honestly, sincerely see the sacrificial system as an animal dying in their place by faith. Then they were forgiven. If they by faith believed it. Not that the blood of animals forgave them, but they realized that someone had to die for their breaking of the law. Now how does a Christian relate to this since the day of Pentecost? The New Testament uses the word law. It refers to all the law from the Sabbath, food, everything. And Ten Commandments. The word law can refer to the entire first five books of the Old Testament, namely the Pentateuch. 
The Bible clearly states the Christian is not under the law. Take a look at Romans 6, 14 and 15. Romans 6, 14 and 15. For sin shall not be master over you, but you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Okay, in the very last page of your notes, you have this homey illustration. See it? Circle. The Christian, there's two prepositions that are in the Greek that are very important for the Christian to understand. First of all is that little preposition, in. And that means in the sphere of. So when it says you are in Christ, you that little preposition, in, means you are in, in it. Not on the outside. You are in Christ and all his perfections and riches. The other prepositional phrase is the word hupo. And that preposition means under. So when it says you are in Christ, you are in the person of Christ. When it says you're not under the law, you're not under the law. You're, you're below the law, you're not under the law. And so the Christian, it says, he is not under law, but under grace. Now, does grace mean we can do anything we want to do anytime we want to do it? God forbid. And that little, that little phrase is two words. Don't even let it enter your mind. The word is don't let it come to be. Don't even think it. This is not the freedom to sin, but you're not under the law. So look at Galatians 5.18. Galatians 5.18. If you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Okay. And we are led by the Spirit if we're born again. At the moment of faith, the Holy Spirit, as we've been teaching, comes to indwell within us. So we are now in the Spirit. We walk in the Spirit, led by the Spirit. You're not under the law. The dynamics of living have changed. Look at 1 Corinthians 9.20. 1 Corinthians 9.20. To the Jews I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, though not being myself, under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. When it comes to evangelism, I go as far as I can, put myself under the law, that I might win them who are under the law, Paul says, though I am not under the law. We've illustrated that in Bible studies uh, quite a bit. Uh, if you're in a religious community, and they uh, believe you shouldn't work on Sunday. You have the liberty as a Christian to work on Sunday. You're not under the law. So, in order not to offend them anymore, and you have to, why do you have, you have the freedom to not work on Sunday? 
If you're with a bunch of people that have a hang-up in foods and they can't eat pork and they can't eat catfish, then uh, when you go to a restaurant with them, don't eat pork and don't eat catfish. And say, ha-ha, I can have catfish. Uh, you know, accommodate them as far as you can because the presentation of the gospel and the idea of living under grace is offensive enough to them. So doesn't it? You don't have to put it in their face, so to speak. All right, so uh, the, the law has its weakness. There's a paradox here. On the one hand, the law is perfect, and yet it is weak. Take a look at Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Okay, the psalmist says, the law of the Lord is perfect. What do you understand by the word perfect? Without blemish or without any... Yeah, without... Perfect. If, you add, uh, if you add one thing to a, something that's perfect, what happens to it? imperfect. So the law of the Lord, the psalmist says, is perfect. Also, uh, take a look at uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 12. Romans 7, verse 12. Again, it talks about the law, it's standing. The law is holy, and then the commandment is holy, and the righteous and good. Okay, so Paul says, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So though the law is good and perfect, here's the problem. Man is fleshly. And unable to keep the law. None of us have kept the law at any point. We're all guilty. Look at Romans 7, verses 13 and 14. Romans 7, 13 and 14. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what was, through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Okay, the law is good, it's holy. How in the world does it bring death to me? Uh, how can something that good bring death? Rather, it's sin. That it may, the law shows us what sin is and causes death through that which is good. So that which is good shows us what good is that we can't attain fleshly, perfectly. So he's saying the commandment would, uh, through the commandment, sin becomes utterly sinful. So the law wasn't given to make you right. The law was never given for a person to make him right. 
The law was given to show him how sinful we really are. Right. Could you also say that the law is the standard of God? That his standard is... Yeah, it's his standard of righteousness. That's why he says if you would, you would keep it, you could live. Problem, we're born in sin. Remember David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. And you all know that. All of you that are parents, have you uh, decided you're going to have a course on to teach your children to sass you? <laughs> or have a course on how to teach them to lie? Doesn't that come normally? Would you spend half your time correcting those things? Because we're liars at birth and we're, we're independent at birth and we're selfish at birth and that continues through our lifetime. So the law just shows us how much that is. You know, Paul thought he kept the law pretty good before he was saved until he came to the 10th commandment. What's the 10th commandment? You shall not, what? Let's name the 10 commandments in order. You shall love the Lord your God. What's the second one? Let's go back to Exodus 20. Yeah. All right. Let's start reading at verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall love, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or the likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous, jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, no idols. What would be the idol of our day? Money would be a big one. Self. These are big ones. Okay, you shall, uh, what's the next one? Verse... Uh, Seven. Somebody read it. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that it takes his name in vain. Okay, that kind of eliminates what? Cussing. Or swearing, right? How far down the list do you go on that? Using the name God or Jesus would definitely be one, wouldn't it? What if you use substitutes? What would be a substitute word for God? Gosh! Where do you think that comes from? 
Think about it. Sometimes we uh, use it. What if you say, oh my God. You ever thought about those? What if you pray haphazardly in Jesus' name? When you pray in Jesus' name, what are you asking, really? You want the things that Jesus wants for you. And you agreement. Would you say that's fair analysis? I could hear a boss run. Uh, but... Uh, Sometimes think these things through a little bit. Um, we're not to take his name in vain. I remember I worked in a I went to seminary in the morning and sat and heard the glory of God and went to the filling station in the afternoon to work and I heard him cuss all day long. And he says he won't hold us in, and he says I will not leave you unpunished. Okay, what's the next one? Verse 8. Is that right? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I talked to one of our brothers this morning. I said, is that your well going out here? He assured me it wasn't, so I felt better. <laughs> We're not under the law, are we? And remember, the Sabbath day is what day of the week? Saturday. Saturday. And when did the Sabbath day start? Friday at, Friday at 6, and it ended Saturday at 6 p.m. So what we've done as a church, religious people, have taken and changed the Sabbath. Who has that right? Israel. Israel didn't have that right either. They had to keep it. They couldn't even gather sticks on the Sabbath day. So they modified it, you know, on Jesus' day. And I was talking to, to uh, John and Brian. Um, when they went to Israel and they went on an elevator... If you were in a hotel on the seventh floor on the Sabbath beginning at Friday at six o'clock, when you got on the elevator and wanted to go to your floor, you could push any button you want and it wouldn't work. But the elevator was automatically stop at every floor. Come down at every floor. Because pushing a button was work. And walking up the steps. Walking, uh, uh, the walk you weren't to walk anywhere, but the Pharisees developed a way that you could walk so far from your from your property. So what you do during the week is you drop a piece of something here, and you'd walk to there, and you'd walk wherever you wanted to walk. That's legalism, right? Okay. What's the next one then? 
obedience to parents. All right, number 12, honor your father and mother so that the days of your life may be prolonged in the land which is the Lord your God gives you. You know what, That we're not under the law, but it's interesting when you read Ephesians 6, you're to honor your parents, even in the New Testament. And guess what? Your children aren't born honoring you, and yet there is an instinctive to honor you and follow you. Parents, work on that instinctive. Teach them to honor you. They naturally want to do that, but they have a heart of rebellion, which you have to curb, and I have to help curb. We need a lot of prayer and wisdom in that. All right. Next one, you shall not murder. What does that include? Don't kill somebody deliberately. How many people have we killed in the United States innocently? Over 70 million since Roe versus Wade. And by the way, we haven't eliminated that yet. You can do it up to what, 12 weeks in Nebraska now? Three months? And every other state in the Union. Except Florida, right? Did Florida ban it? I think they did. The governor, uh, pretty strong there. You shall not bear, okay, uh, so it's abortion. You know what Jesus said? Then he comes and reinterprets the whole thing. He says, if you hate somebody, you murdered Wow. James comes along and he said, if you, if you are guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it. You shall not commit adultery. What did Jesus say? You know what that really means, Jesus said? If you thought it. Well, that catches a lot of people there for sure. All right, you shall not steal. can't take one thing from that which is not your own, including the government. Correct? So somebody gives you too much change, what do you do with it? Give it back. We've all had that. Maybe you haven't. We've had the embarrassing thing of one of our kids innocently picking up a candy bar at the store and we never paid for it. And to take it back can be kind of interesting. But we made him take it back and we explained to the retailer that we're teaching this, please don't send us to jail. All right. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That probably eliminates you going to coffee. 
probably eliminates a lot of family reunions. How, how quick it is to bear false witness. And why do we do it? To build up ourselves. Make us look good. And we're guilty of the very same things. Alright. Now we're to the tenth. Somebody read the tenth. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Okay, have you noticed this is a little bit different than the rest of them? Covet is not a physical thing. It's what? Mental. It's a mental thing. We used to, on Sunday afternoons in Kansas City, drive in the richest part of the city. And we said it wasn't coveting. It was just seeing how they lived. Wish you had more acres. Wish you had a better house. You know what the Bible says? Be content. Learn to be content with whatever we have. So, the Ten Commandments cover it all, quite frankly. Let alone all the other ordinances that went with it in the law. All right. Ron? Yes. Explain to me that how you handle that is that I wish I had your house and you had a better house. Oh, then you're not covering <laughs> I think I've heard that statement before. <laughs> we wish the best for you. That you could have our house and we could have yours. <laughs> Company. Okay. We did we read yeah, we did. We read Romans eight, three to four, right? Did we read that? No. no. So let's read that, please. Okay, Romans 8, 3 and 4. For what the law could not do, that it is weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay, what the law could not do is make you perfect. Just told you what your bad was. Law is okay, <clears throat> it's spiritual, but it was weak through the flesh, our flesh. So here's what God did. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as a man and as an offering for sin. How many laws did Jesus break? None. Not one. Interesting, he was happy. He was a happy person. But he didn't break one law. So, uh, the law, so that the law standard would not be relaxed. God didn't relax the law standard. That law of righteousness was held high. There was one human being that perfectly 
met every demand of the law of the Old Testament, and that was Jesus Christ. Now, in Romans 8, we read this. Go to Romans 8. I didn't put that in here. Romans 8. Where it tells us in the last part of that chapter. He says, um, oh, I'm in 1 Corinthians. No wonder it didn't make sense. Uh, Romans 8. Where it says, maybe you see it before I do, where it says in uh, verse 32, somebody read that, please. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God did not relax the demands of the law when it came to Jesus Christ, his very own son. All the penalty of the law, the broken law, was put upon a perfectly righteous, innocent person. The fact that he is also a theocentric person, he's one person, but he's also God, he could pay that penalty fully. So God did not spare his own son at all but we read here he gave he delivered him over for all us all how will he not also with him freely give us all things if god went to all that trouble and to that great sacrifice and that great cost what is he going to do for us he saved us from our sins we're talking about a little bit next message, but the point is, we have a hope. We have a hope. Look at Romans chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. There's no partiality with God. You know, we always, they talk about it when you read... Uh, what's going on in our government that justice should be blind but it hasn't been in other words there should be no partiality with the legal system well there isn't with God take a look at Romans 2 11 to 12 for God does not show favoritism all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law, and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. Okay, Andrew, read verses 14 and 15 of that same chapter. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even okay there are two groups of people <clears throat> the people of Israel who had the, ten, the commandments the, the law and there were people in Timbuktu who didn't have the law never heard of the law 
interesting uh, faith sister was in uh, Arian Jaya for a number of years, which is formerly Dutch New Guinea. Uh, she had the distinct privilege of going into villages, a couple of them, where they'd never seen a white man. These were not idolaters in their religion, they were spirit worshipers. They believed there was an evil spirit and in order to in order to satisfy the evil spirit they had to give sacrifices to the evil spirit if a baby died the mother then would have her finger cut off at the joint that's a sacrifice she would have to make and in those primitive situations you'd have mothers that look like this the average age of the person was like 40. So the girls got married at 12, 13 years old as soon as puberty set in. Lost most of their babies. They had to sit by their babies and keep, they buried them in brushes, put them on a pole, and the mother would have to sit there for several weeks, mourning the loss of her baby. Imagine how disease that would promote. And, and people say, oh, we ought to preserve these primitive people and they're living under these kind of circumstances. The tribes which she entered, the very primitive ones, they wore no clothing whatsoever. So at night, even in the middle of the jungle, close to the equator, they would all pile and sleep together in one massive room and uh, to keep warm. Now, here's what's interesting. They knew the difference between being married and committing adultery. And if the husband and wife would go into the jungles to cohabitate, but if a man took another woman, wasn't his wife, he would be beheaded, shrink his head, and they'd eat him. But isn't it interesting they knew about adultery? Do your dogs know about that? How about your herd of cattle? No. Humans know. And I'm saying this because they have a law written on their heart knowing what is right and what is wrong. Knowing stealing is wrong. Adultery is wrong. Homosexual is wrong. They know that. Intuitively. So God says, I'm not relaxing the law. I'm going to judge the people who have the law by the law. And I'm going to judge the people who have the law written on their hearts by what is written on their hearts. I'm not relaxing the law. So the law could not save, but it was incumbent upon God. If he wanted to save individuals, he had to do it. Right? If we're going to be saved, then God has to do the initiation. Look at Galatians 
3.13 of Galatians. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The Old Testament said anybody that hung on a tree was cursed. And uh, Jesus became cursed for us, having hung on a tree, the cross. And God redeemed us, bought us out of the sacrifice or out of the slavery of sin to himself. Okay, so uh, Jesus became a curse for us. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 6. Isaiah 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Well, Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He paid for our sin. So the law contributes nothing to our salvation. Nothing. Contributes nothing. Just tells us how bad we are and how, how, how God hates sin and how bad it is. So it contributes nothing to our salvation now. It contributes nothing to our progressive sanctification. Take a look at Romans 6, verse 14. We already read it, I think. <coughs> As I recall. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall not be master over you. Man, when you look at the law, you just think, man, how depressing. And how bad I am. And I can hardly wait to get to a sacrifice and get some relief and realize that an animal is a picture of Christ dying for me. Look at uh, Romans 7, verse 6. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. Okay, now we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, speaking of the law. Here's a question we'll answer next time. The big question. If God, if Christian growth, if Christian salvation is all of God, and progressive sanctification, growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord, is all of God, what is a Christian to do? You'll have to come back next week and get the answer. I'll give you a hint. Why don't you look up Hebrew, or Philippians 2 12 to 13. I can't leave you hanging there. Some of you will probably go wacky try to figure it out. Philippians 2 12 and 13. 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Okay, work out your salvation doesn't say work for your salvation. Work out what God has done for you through salvation. With what? Fear and trembling. And it is God who works in you both to what? Will and do. What is it in you that makes you want to go to a place where you study the Bible? What is it in you that makes you want to serve others and serve the Lord? It's God. He gives you that desire. And here it's Memorial Day weekend and you're coming to church and you're thinking, I could have been at the lake. Or I could have been at the barbecue with my relatives. But I'm here. Because something is driving me here. And what would that be? It's not your flesh. It's your spirit. It's the Holy Spirit driving you. Isn't it? So that's how you know. Have you ever fought coming to church on Sunday morning? Not this crowd, but other people that aren't here. What drives you to do that? It's the spirit in cooperation with your new nature. We've got people that drive from Hastings and Grand Island and Beaver Crossing and Stromsburg and Sutton. What makes them do that? It's the Holy Spirit that does that. What makes me want to teach? The Holy Spirit. There's days I don't feel like it. But there's that drive within me that I can't say no to. And that's the Spirit of God. That's not just my intestinal fortitude. That is the Spirit of God. So we'll look at words like pursue in the New Testament. Applying all diligence, even though it is God who is moving you to serve. Figure that one out. And you'll have solved... Uh, you'll have solved a great mystery between God's sovereignty and human free will. That's for another time. Thanks for being here and for your attention. I appreciate all of you and appreciate you coming and putting up with this. And uh, I enjoy doing it. <coughs>